Good morning, good afternoon, or good night, nerds around the globe, and welcome to the 24th episode of the Nerd Byword, the only podcast that melts in your mouth, not in your hand. What? I'm your host, Dave, here with fellow host, Chris, and we're excited to once again be your guides into the world of nerddom. Today, we've got a special episode planned. We'll be talking about the very worst superhero comics we've ever read. Mind you, these might not be the worst superhero comics ever, since neither one of us has read every single comic book ever published, but simply the worst each of us has encountered. Consider this a big red flag warning sign. If you are getting ready to start reading comic books, this is the stuff that might scare you off. But before we get started, let's dig into some nerd news first. Chris, I hear you'll be howling at the moon with your news story this week. What's happening? Well, it looks like Marvel has found their Moon Knight. Um, Star Wars actor Oscar Isaac is in deep discussions with uh, Marvel and Disney Plus um, to take on the helm of Moon Knight, um, alter ego known as Mark Spector. Um, Jeremy Slater, who developed and wrote Netflix's series adaptation of the Umbrella Academy, which is you know being received with rave reviews by fans and critics alike um has been tapped to develop the and lead the writing team um on this show so um that looks like a a great name to be attached as as the showrunner or whatnot um for those of you that are not as familiar with the character moon knight aka mark specter is a mercenary with multiple personalities um alter egos if you will um he has the cabbie Jake Lockley and millionaire playboy Stephen Grant. In order to better fight the criminal underworld, he also um, is a conduit for the Egyptian moon god Khonshu. Um, a lot of fans liken him to, quote, Marvel's Batman. Um, a lot of similarities between the two characters. Um, and it's really, for me... Um, this is a really popular character amongst Marvel fans, but I'm really interested to see how they do this because it is a very, very different direction than most of the MCU has gone before. And I can't think of um, a better choice of, of actor to take this uh, at the helm, especially when you have um, an actor uh, or a character that has like multiple personality syndrome and, and plays different characters. Oscar Isaac has shown... Um, with Ex Machina, with Star Wars, um, even, you know, X-Men Apocalypse, as awful as that movie was, he has still shown depth, um, in his talents as an actor to portray some, uh, a, a deep character like this. So I'm, I'm very excited to see where they go. I'm also excited with all these Disney Plus shows and the fact that we don't have to wait for a theatrical release um, for these shows now they may push them back to to keep with the timeline and whatever but um it seems like they're really moving forward with she hulk um with tatiana maslani's casting um with the casting of ms marvel um wandavision looks like it will indeed be released next month so i'm super super excited for that and I'm just excited for new content on disney plus um the mandalorian season two has been awesome even better than expected so uh, as a fan i am i'm geeking out right now dave see my my dc fandom is showing again here because i'm completely unfamiliar with moon knight i've heard him referred to as exactly what you said marvel's answer to batman but that's about it 
I'll have to do some reading to figure out what this character is all about. Uh, on the flip side, I'm a big fan of Oscar Isaacs. I enjoy him in most of his roles, even if he happens to be in a subpar movie or two. I'm particularly excited to see him in the upcoming Dune movie uh, as uh, Leto Atreides. Uh, I'm a huge fan of, of the original Dune novels, less so uh, the late-come prequel sequels that have been coming out in the last few years. Um, but the original book in particular is, is sort of a seminal piece of science fiction, and I can see him fitting in really well into that movie. I've got high hopes for him in that role. So as far as I'm concerned, I'll definitely check out Oscar Isaac as Moon Knight. Uh, first, I think I will have to read some of the comics, though, to kind of figure out who in the world Moon Knight actually is. Yeah, my, my experience with the character is quite limited. Um, I encountered him several times on, um, in my Spider-Man read-throughs as, as a street-level, as, as a typically street-level hero. Um, I know that he has popped up, uh, you know, in team-up issues with, with Spider-Man a little bit, um, especially the late 80s, early 90s, that era of, of, of Spidey comics. Um, other than that, I played with him in Mul Marvel Ultimate Alliance, one of my all-time favorite video games. Um and I know that um, he is heavily featured in a book that I really plan on diving into, and that's Jason Aaron's current run on Avengers. They just had like a, a pretty big event um, with him as the centerpiece. So I, I plan on diving deep into that um, series coming up soon. Um, but I'm excited to see, you know, where it goes. I, I feel like a, long, a lot of ways along the lines of, of Guardians of the Galaxy was back in 2014, where I knew next to nothing about these characters, even as big as a, a Marvel fan that I was. I didn't know hardly any of these characters, and it was like something new. That's how, And that's how I feel about like the Eternals coming out. I know next to nothing about the Eternals other than that's Jack Kirby's baby. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for something new coming forward. Yeah, absolutely. And anything with Jack Kirby's name attached is uh, already interesting just by default. The man had an imagination that was just incredible. So I'm excited for the Eternals as well. Now, Dave, you've got a very sticky situation on tap for your nerd news. What's going on? Well, I'll tell you, it seems like every time that I look uh, for an interesting story to talk about here, I run into something that's just uh, completely out of the left field. So here's Johnny Depp, uh, who is leaving the magical world of Harry Potter behind. Uh, to date, he has appeared in two movies of the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them series as Dark Wizard Gellert Grindelwald. Last week, he posted a message on Instagram that read in part, I wish to let you know that I have been asked to resign by Warner Brothers from my role as Grindelwald in Fantastic Beasts, and I have respected and agreed to that request. Warner has since delayed the third installment in the series until 2022 and announced that they plan on recasting the role. So what exactly happened here? I mean, Johnny Depp is a household name actor. Why did they want to not have him in their next movie? Uh, well, it stems basically from a pretty ugly divorce, it seems. Uh, Depp was briefly married to Amber Heard, uh, familiar to nerds as Mera in the Aquaman movie. The two apparently did not mesh well, had a very contentious relationship, and after divorcing each other, uh, ended up accusing each other of abusive behavior. Uh, most recently, Depp had actually sued the British tabloid The Sun for libel for calling him a quote-unquote wife-beater in one of their headlines. The British courts have now actually dismissed his lawsuit, which in essence implies that The Sun was justified in using that terminology. And not long after, Deb posted his resignation on Instagram. Now, he also uh, was sure to comment that he disagreed with the decision of the British courts and would be appealing that decision. 
so, so what now? I mean, the Harry Potter franchise seems to be turning increasingly radioactive. In addition to Depp's situation, uh, author J.K. Rowling has been accused of transphobia after making a series of comments about the trans community. And I really hate to see this happen to the Harry Potter franchise, of all things. The books, in particular, have given me a great deal of joy over the years. And seeing them associated with so much ugliness is just deeply troubling. Chris, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I echo all your sentiments. Um, I, you know, so it seems like the writing was on the wall with this libel case coming to an end. I did learn something interesting that that libel cases in the UK is is the opposite of the, what it is in the US. Usually, in the US, the burden of proof is on the person making the accusations, but in the UK, it's flipped, and the burden of proof is on the people who are accused of libel. And twelve of those fourteen counts were were found to be you know accurate uh, by the judge. So that was quite interesting. Um, and it was really interesting as well because Warner Brothers and especially J.K. Rowling herself came out in public support of Johnny Depp um, and his casting. And, and you know, w- when it was pretty controversial a couple of years ago. Um, and then this whole Amber Heard Johnny Depp case just makes my head spin. I, I'm, I, I don't think that we can know the truth, honestly, at this point. I, I spent like an hour to an hour and a half trying to get to the facts of the case and why so many people were um, seemingly against Amber Heard now, like seem like there's been a, a significant shift. A lot of people are wanting her to be cut out of the Aquaman sequel. Um, but from what I can tell, just based on that, you know, I, I, I honestly don't know. From what I see online, it looks like just a bunch of Johnny Depp fans that are saying that, that she is, you know, reprehensible and all this stuff. Um, but if I, if, and it's really difficult too, when you have accusations of abuse on both sides, um, to make, to make heads or tails of it. Um, and, and like I said, it's impossible to know the truth, but going on what you said, I think the real problem moving forward with the Harry Potter franchise and, and the fandom and all of that is JK Rowling's stance on trans individuals. Um, no matter what your own thoughts or feelings are if you want to take this strictly from an economic standpoint this is just bad for her bottom line um there's a significant section of the fan base who have severed ties with her and they have cut cut her off completely um so like i said no matter what you feel what your beliefs are simply the fact that you are alienating um, you know, a section of your fan base and, and she doubles down every time that it is brought up again. So, um, you know, you had some significant diminishing returns with the sequel, which if I'm being honest, I thought was in, in, in a lot of parts better than the original fantastic beasts. A fantastic piece was a, a nice enough film. Um, Eddie Redmayne is, is fantastic as Newt's commander. He's great. Um, the cast is, is, is pretty pretty uh substantial on that but um for me the revelation was was jude law um as the young dumbledore so um you know i i truly enjoyed the second film but um it feels a bit you know weird you know revisiting this property you know with all of these things coming to light yeah i will say uh eddie redmayne did a great matt smith as uh doctor who uh in Fantastic Beasts. If if you're familiar <laughs> with that franchise, I think there's some very strong parallels between uh, Matt Smith's portrayal of the Doctor and uh, 
Eddie Redmayne's uh, portrayal in Fantastic Beasts. Yeah, but uh, to your point, um, it's it's such an odd situation when you have uh, a property as beloved as Harry Potter, and then the creator, the author of this uh, property, uh, says some things that uh, are seriously off-putting. It, it's difficult to draw the line between the creator and the creation, and how much is your enjoyment of the creation informed by whether or not you agree with the creator on various social issues. Um, I, I will say that in some ways, to me at the very least, just reading in the subtext of, of the Harry Potter books, it seems odd for J.K. Rowling to make statements that are very much non-inclusive, when it seemed to me at least that a lot of the point of the whole mudblood situation, non-pure uh, blooded wizards, uh, v- was very much sort of a metaphor for like a, a oppression and singling people out because they're different in some way from you and how that is not not an acceptable thing to do. It was always painted in a very negative light. Uh, people who um, had a negative view of non-pure blood wizards. So it seems odd to me that that she made such a, a a big point of that in her fiction writing, and then in real life seems to take a very different stance when it comes to inclusiveness. So I can see why some members of the fan base who who picked up on this this subtext or or read into what she was saying in in her fiction were taken aback and a little disappointed with her statements. Ultimately, there seems to be a disconnect between what she wrote. And now what she's saying, and, and that disconnect uh, seems to hurt some of the fans. So, yeah, but where do you draw the line? I think that's a, a question that I, I don't think we can quite answer. You know, where do you draw the line between the enjoyment of the product and and an agreement with the creator? And can you enjoy a product of a creator who you find reprehensible or who you disagree with? And, and I think that's really the heart of the matter right now with Harry Potter. Well, and I think it's an interesting thing. And for me, this all started with um, the Bill Cosby situation. There was an individual that I, I grew up, um, you know, idolizing. And, and I watched the Cosby show every night um, when it would come on um, on, on Nickelodeon. Um, and then, you know, for those things to come to light, that was a really tough transition for me. But um, it has kind of helped me prepare for, for situations like this to where, but then, you know, even, even, even at that, like you said, um, those are two entirely different situations. And, and, and I have no problems cutting ties with Bill Cosby and all of his work because of the disgusting nature and this reprehensible behavior that he engaged in versus just a difference in ideologies and a shift in beliefs. Um, you know, so it's, it's a little bit more muddled, um, in this situation. Yeah, totally. And I think there's something to even be said for, for, you know, people to be able to stand here and say, okay, you know what, uh, let's, let's just agree to disagree and move on. Well, and I, and I use this analogy a lot with my students and my own children is, you know, let, like, let's say that we all go to a restaurant and, and I have a particular choice that I choose on a menu and you can, you can use that as a metaphor for, you know, religious beliefs. You can use that as a, you know, metaphor for, um, you know, sexual orientation or, or what or what have you, what I choose on the menu, I am not forcing you because you're sitting at the same, same table with me to order the same thing. I, I, I eat a vegetarian diet. 
I don't force you, Dave, to eat a vegetarian diet just because I do that. Good luck and, with that, my friend. Good luck. Right? <laughs> well, listen, it, it was a, it was, it was, it was a monumental development for me. I never thought I could do it. But um, you know, we can. You're a DC guy. I'm a Marvel guy. You and I are not at each other's throats. We're still good friends. We still enjoy a lot of the same things because. Uh, but it, it's not like a be all end all because we have different tastes in things. You know, we, um, it, I'm, I'm a straight man. I have a lot of LGBTQ, uh, friends, um, and family, and it doesn't bother me in the slightest because they have different preferences for me, uh, uh, than I do. So, um, but at the same time, you know, you got to pick and choose your battles. If, if you're running, um, a multi-billion dollar enterprise, do you really want to die on that hill to where you're alienating a large part of your fan base and you're literally losing money because you just have to put your opinion out there all the time and double down on it? Uh, There you have it. That's it for nerd news for this week. After the break, we're going to get really negative. Stick around as we tell a tale as old as time. A tale of crappy comic books. We'll be right back. And we're back, ladies and gentle people, with this week's Byword Big Talk. Chris and I each have selected the three worst superhero comic books we have ever read. Now, we do not want to appear overly negative here, but we do want to make sure that if you have not read a lot of comic books and you're interested in getting started, that you avoid these particular tales like the proverbial plague. Chris... You get to go first. What is the first book you would like to talk about? So, and and Dave and I just said this before we hit the record button. Guys, every week we give you nerd commendations of books and shows and video games that you should check out. Guys, these are the things that you should absolutely, under no circumstances, should you check them out. Think of these as anti-nerd commendations. My first anti-nerd commendation is Chuck Austin's run on X-Men. This is a, a set of characters that our fans know is very, very near and dear to my heart. But it is, at the same time, for that very reason, it is one of the worst comic book runs that I've ever read. And I only encountered it... You know, when Dave came to me with the idea for this episode, I, I really had to think hard because mo- I, I got a late start in reading comments, comics, and, and most of the time I was reading comics based on other people's recommendations. So they were like, you know, you need to read this event or you need to read um, Ultimate Spider-Man. You know, so I was getting recommendations from friends and family members who loved comic books, and they were recommending me the good stuff. So I haven't read a whole lot of bad comics. The ones that I have read that are bad um, were usually because I did one of my patented read-throughs on a particular character or, or team-up. And and the first one that comes to mind is Chuck Austin's X-Men. Now, I'm going to set the scene, you know, as a history nerd, I want to set the historical context. Um Chuck Austin's X-Men takes place um, from 2002 to 2005. So think about what was happening in X-Men comics. Dave, you can even comment on this. In 2004, Joss Whedon was writing his Astonishing X-Men. It was incredibly popular. It was selling like hotcakes. Um, and in 2001, you had Grant Morrison's new X-Men, which completely was a paradigm shift um, of your regular old X-Men comics, 
um, and just completely turned everything on its head and was so groundbreaking and so awesome and so well received by critics and fans alike. And, and again, was like Whedon's run in 2004 would come to be was very, very popular and selling very, very well. So poor Chuck Austin had to go up against those with the main uncanny title in, in 2002 and then the second volume of X-Men uh, in 2004. So when you're talking the Chuck Austin X-Men run, you're talking about uncanny X-Men issues 410 to 443. Um, and then you're talking X-Men volume 2 um, issues 155 to 163. So this is an extended period of time. And it's really interesting to look at the career of Chuck Austin who is widely regarded um, very unfavorably by fans, and yet he has written, you know, three entire years on on X Men, one of the flagship titles for Marvel Comics. He went on to write Avengers. He did some work for DC with Action Comics, um, and and still to be so widely regarded um, as as not a fan favorite is quite interesting. So again, he had the unenviable task of writing the other X-Men books opposite of Grant Morrison's new X-Men and Whedon's Astonishing. Um, in, an, in interviews, he said that he wanted to give fans what they wanted and to do it by telling a story that had never been told before. He didn't necessarily give fans what they wanted, but he definitely told stories that no one had ever told before. So this is basically just the hit list on why you should avoid these. Um, one of the featured characters in, in, in one of his first rosters, also to set the scene, um, basically Chuck Austin, um, was, was issued the mutants that, um, Grant Morrison did not want to feature in New X-Men. So basically he got the leftover characters. Um, one of those characters he chose to feature was not his creation, but a very minor character in a previous storyline, and that's Stacy X, <laughs> who's mutant. So, uh. so, Stacy X's, I, I, I swear, I'm not, I'm not joking here. Stacy X's mutant power was prostitution with pheromone control. And that's one of the first characters that he really chose to feature. Um, not only was she on the team, like she was the central figure of like his first arc. That's quite a superpower, Chris. Right. Yeah. Um, it gets better, Dave. She defeated Black Tom Cassidy, um, who, was suffering from his second mutation. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with Black Tom Cassidy, he's kind of like this. His mutation is kind of like he communicates with plants or whatever. And his secondary mutation, which which was um, like that whole idea was created by Grant Morrison in New X-Men. Um, so he was turning all the way into a plant and his best friend, Juggernaut, came to the X-Men and was like, please help out. Uh, please help me out. Black Tom's losing it. He's going crazy. And Stacy X defeated Black Tom Cassidy, Dave, I wish I was kidding, by causing him to orgasm. So I'm just going to point out that uh, this is literally what I have in my notes here. Because I was not able to read this whole run, but I did read the first story arc, Hope, uh, yes. the first trade paperback. Right. And, the very, and the very first thing I wrote down in, in my notes here is... Grant Morrison's X-Men and Joss Whedon's X-Men just happened. And and Chuck Austin's follow uh, concurrent, I guess, uh follow-up is Stacy X, a prostitute mutant with pheromone powers, resolves a conflict with Black Tom Cassidy by using her powers to give him an orgasm. That moment told me all I needed to know about Chuck Austin's X-Men. Not for me. And it's consistent, as you'll see as I continue through my hit list. Um, one of, I will say, I'll give credit where credit is due, one of the best dynamics 
um, of Chuck Austin's X-Men run is Sammy the Fish Boy, who's this like 12, 13 year old kid um, who is one of those unfortunate mutants who doesn't have a super cool power. He's literally just a human fish. So he, he looks unfortunate and he has this real great relationship with Juggernaut. Chuck Austin loves Juggernaut. He makes him part of the X-Men team. Um, and it was a really great relationship with Juggernaut um, and Sammy the Fish Boy. Unfortunately, he took the best thing that he did for, for those three years and he ruined that relationship because it turns out that Juggernaut was a sleeper agent for the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And Sammy was crushed to find out and Black Tom Cassidy immediately kills Sammy the Fish Boy. He also had a super creepy relationship between Archangel and Husk, um, who we are not sure what her age was, Paige Guthrie's age at that time. So it seemed a little bit statutory. It was also like this big love triangle between them. And then when Husk and Archangel finally get together, Dave, they fly up into the air and they have sex in midair in front of her mother and the entire X-Men team. I, I, are you sensing a trend here, Dave, with this entire run? I, I seem to feel like Chuck Austin has some uh, interesting hang-ups. Yeah, yeah. Well, he also uh, made his name by writing basically, you know, comic porn before he got this job. So it makes sense. One of one of the ones that, that angered me the most um, was his Draco uh, arc where he revealed that Nightcrawler really was a demon and that his father was Azazel who was a mutant race of demons. So that completely took all the beautiful symbolisms and the metaphors that Chris Claremont laid the groundwork with of how, yes, he looks like a demon, but he's really deep down just this beautiful human being and took all of that and all those villagers that you saw in Giant Size X-Men number one, they were right to you know, pursue him as this demon because... He actually was a demon. So that was particularly frustrating and infuriating for me as, you know, Kurt Wagner's number one fan. But I can't even say that that's the worst of it because here it is. The She Lies with Angels arc of Uncanny X-Men 437 through 444 with, with Dave, if I had to sum it up in one phrase, it's a redneck Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> it is literally the Guthries, who I love. I love the Guthries. They're one of my favorite parts of the X-Men fandom. I love G Cannonball Sam Guthrie. Um, I love Husk. She has a fascinating power. Paige Guthrie, his sister. And and the fact that, that Mama Guthrie just churned out all these mutant babies, but was not a mutant herself, shouts to Mama Guthrie. But it's the Guthries versus the Cabots, this like Hatfields versus McCoys. And there's a forbidden love, of course, where one of the Guthrie sons is in love with the Cabot daughter. And the Cabots discover left behind tech suits that look like Hulkbuster armor. And then they go, this all takes place in rural Kentucky. They, they take, they put on those mech suits and then they go and attack the Guthries. And it's a super stereotypical portrayal of rural Kentucky. It's very icky. Um, it's, it's so weird. This whole run, like I, I almost stopped my X-Men read-through. And again, that's the only reason I encountered this is because I wanted to read almost every X-Men comic through history. And when you do all of something, sometimes you got to take the bad with the good. So Chuck Austin's X-Men, guys, if you can avoid it, please do. Yeah, I have nothing to add. Literally, like I said earlier, my only note was I, I read one storyline. I saw the whole 
mutant prostitute uh, orgasm thing. And I was like, you know what? This book is not for me. So I really <laughs> I have nothing to add. I don't think I can even finish this run. I just it's it's so far removed from what I'm interested in. Yeah, I'm 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 not I'm not interested. So that's all I got to say. <laughs> oh god. Well, Dave, your first title is a little bit misleading cuz it says All-Star, so you think it's really really good. Oh, I'm I'm telling you this is legendary. So once upon a time, DC uh, thought they had found an answer to Marvel's ultimate line of comics, a way to tell classic stories free from decades of continuity. They called it the All-Star Line. The idea was to bring together some of the best writers and artists in the industry today and just let them cut loose without having to worry about continuity. The All-Star Line was pretty much a failure. It produced exactly one great book, All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly, which is... Beautiful in about 40 different ways, and I will sing its praises till the day I die. However, the only other series the line actually produced was an absolute stinker known as All-Star Batman and Robin The Boy Wonder by Frank Miller and Jim Lee. The book is supposed to retell the origin of Dick Grayson, the first Robin. It was published sporadically between 2005 and 2008, and it was never finished, and may God help us all, I hope it never will be finished. How do I even describe this book? Look, the, the, the art is gorgeous. Jim Lee is at the height of his powers here, and his Batman is a sight to behold. It's the writing where this book falters. You know, that's not even right. The writing implodes. It, it fails to launch. It digs a shallow grave and dies in it. One of the problems is that there isn't re even really a story here, a central conflict or a through line. Stuff just kind of happens. And boy, the stuff that happens. It's unbelievable what we get. Here are some of the lowlights. Batman refers to himself as the goddamn Batman while asking Robin if he is retarded. He encourages Dick Grayson to kill and eat rats in the Batcave. Uh, Vicky Vale, a Bruce Wayne lover's interest, spends several pages in lingerie for no reason. Uh, then is in a horrible car accident, recovers, and then just disappears from the book for reasons. Black Canary shows up. That's great. Uh, here, for some reason, she's Irish. Beats up some thugs with Batman, uh, only then to have sex with him in the rain for... reasons? Batman monologues about Gotham City on every other page in terms that come across as disturbing, possibly sexual in nature. I seriously thought at some point he'll start making out with one of those Gotham City stone gargoyles. The Joker shows up too, and get this, he never smiles makes a point to say that he's not funny. Oh, and he has a giant tattoo on his back. Thanks, Frank Miller, for inspiring Jared Leto. Wonder Woman also suddenly appears, just to tell us all that she hates men, and then starts making out with Superman for reasons, I guess? Oh, 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 here's a good one. Batman and Robin paint themselves and an entire room yellow to mess with Green Lantern, who, whose ring has a weakness to the color yellow. Oh, and then Dick Grayson proceeds to beat him nearly to death, and Batman has to stop him, because, you know, that's what we want from our boy Wonder, uh, trying to beat other superheroes to death. And then there's the phrase love chunks, which is repeatedly used to describe women. Now, I've heard some interesting terminology used before in comic books, but love chunks is new to me. Look, Frank Miller wrote one of the all-time greatest Batman stories in year one. And The Dark Knight Returns is considered a classic too, although I never quite saw the appeal of that one. This, however? This? The writing in All-Star Batman is an affront to everything superhero comics can and should be. 
it reads like a bad parody of Batman that, as it continues, begins to actually parody itself like a snake eating its own tail. It's it's bizarre trash, plain and simple. Chris, do you have any thoughts on All-Star Batman and Robin? God, Dave, I could only get through the first five issues, and then I was like, no, I can't do this anymore. And it, here's the worst part, Dave. This is my first experience with Frank Miller's writing. My only experience with Frank Miller's work was a couple of Spidey issues that he did in ASM and like Marvel Team Up and stuff, or and I think a couple of annuals. That's it. I haven't dove into year one yet, but it's in my library. Um, his run on Daredevil is in my library as well, so I haven't even done that. But like, I'm going to have to put that way on the back burner because this is leaving such a crappy taste in my mouth like i literally can taste vomit right now it 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 feels like i I think i i think the phrase that i used um when i texted you about this grit for grit's sake just like and and unfortunately a lot of my experience with dc is like how dark and demented can we make this just for the sake of making it dark and gritty you know I, I enjoy um, the first two Christopher Nolan Batman films, but then we have this trend in, in especially the DC film universe where they just wanted to make everything dark and gritty, including Superman, an individual who's supposed to symbolize hope and light. And even though they say in The Man of Steel, this symbolizes hope, I don't buy it because the rest of the film is snapping necks and destroying the entire city and countless civilians are being, you know, killed in in the wake of it. So I I don't buy any of that. And and it's so frustrating. And, and and that looks like at every possible point in every possible literary choice that Frank Miller has, it's let's go as awful and as dark and as demented as possible. Immediately, the, the I think it's the first issue of this title, not only did Dick Grayson's parents die. They are shot in the head. And Bruce Wayne, Batman's reaction is to abandon his date with Vicky Vale and to straight up kidnap the kid who he's been creepily stalking. So not only does it play on the whole joke of, you know, Batman has this creepy relationship with young boys, it takes that and doubles and triples and quadruples down on it to where he just straight up kidnaps him, forces him to eat rats. Um, and then does all of these other strange, strange things. And then I feel like the only person, and this is just in the first five issues, the only person who felt like they were properly characterized was Superman. But it's kind of hard being the only character that they got right when everybody around you, including Diana, is so jacked up. And and, and also, we talked about this privately as well, it's such a misuse of Jim Lee's art. It is. I, I'm wearing a Jim Lee X-Men t-shirt right now. He is probably one of, if not my absolute favorite artists, and doesn't matter if he's DC or Marvel, whatever he's drawing, it's freaking gorgeous. And just to see that his art misused, even, even, even if I get a little bit creepy vibes of, you know, Vicky Vale and lingerie, the writing choices are the real crime, pun intended here. Now, I will go ahead and do you one better. I actually... Uh did some research and read some script pages of Frank Miller. And the whole Vicky Vale lingerie stuff is literally directly in the script. That is not, those are not Jim Lee's art choices. At one point, 
uh, Frank Miller's script says something along the lines, and I'm mildly paraphrasing. Uh, you know me, I'm shameless. Let's go for a butt shot. So this, e even that, which comes across as mildly creepy to you, is not really on Jim Lee's shoulders. It was literally in the script like that. Um, I, you know, I, I remember buying the first few issues of this book specifically off of the back of All-Star Superman, which was absolutely a seminal piece of work and some of Grant Morrison's best work and, and Frank quietly has some of the most gorgeous art in this book and it was inspiring and uplifting. And yes, free of continuity, they were able to tell an incredible Superman story. And I'm a huge Dick Grayson fan and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to get Dick Grayson's origin in, in the style of something like All-Star Superman. I cannot wait. And, and to get this instead, I just... After every issue, I was asking myself, is this is this going to get better? Is this really what I'm buying? Do I need to take a shower after reading every single one of these issues? Because I feel dirty after reading this. It's so regrettable because there was so much potential there. You know, again, Frank Miller can write a decent Batman story. He's done it in the past, but, but this is not it. Ah, yeah. I, I've got nothing else to say. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> well then let's go ahead and shift gears chris uh what what is your second choice for uh worst uh comic book that people should avoid god it's kind of depressing we go from one awful book to the next um <laughs> now um this this comic is one that um we talked about last episode and kind of how this idea for this show kind of came to be um, and that is since past Spider-Man. So thanks. Thanks, Joe. Uh, this is your fault, man. Um, <laughs> but, uh, for those of you who are blessed and don't know, since past, um, is, is an amazing Spider-Man arc, um, written by J. Michael Stradinsky and bless his heart. It's Mike Deodato's very first arc as the regular artist on ASM. And, and I love Deodato's art. I, I love I love how like realistic it is. Um, I love how kind of dark uh, in places it can be. The shading on his arc is, is very beautiful. Um, but um, yeah. So basically what happens in this story, um, for absolutely no reason, we find out that way back in the uh, Stan Lee, John Romita era of, of this story, um, Norman Osborn has sex with Gwen Stacy. Um, not really offered any reasoning why. Um, now, and, and I will say this, like, I have to do the right thing. Much like Peter Parker, I have to do the right thing. Gwen Stacy, as I revealed last episode, is not my favorite lo love interest. At least the 616 Gwen Stacy is not my favorite love interest for Peter Parker. But I have to defend her in this complete character assassination. Um, and, and you revealed a lot about, you know, the research behind this um, uh, and JMS's idea um, behind this. And, and again, one of my all-time favorite Spidey scribes is responsible for this story. This was his baby. This was his idea. Yes, they toyed with it on editorial. And, and Harry Osborn would have made um, a little more sense as someone their age, um, as a contemporary, like you said. But it's completely unnecessary. For God's sake, in real time, she had been dead for 35 years. 
30 to 35 years. And she and she's one of the few comic characters who stayed dead. Why did you have to do this? Um a lot of fans um are are a lot of Spider-Man fans love Spider-Man Blue. A lot of Spider-Man fans like Gwen Stacy and and so I guess JMS's attempt was to make her um you know a little bit more human, a little bit more approachable, but this is not the way you go about doing that. And and for me the moment the editorial would come down and say you can't do Harry, it has to be Norman. I'll say bleep it. I'm 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 going to do I'm going to tell another story. There's no way. There's no way. And if you need a reason not to read this book and I've referenced this last episode, look no further than the Green Goblin's O face that you see directly in a panel. And to top this all off, this happens right before Norman kills her. Not only that, not only that, he gets her pregnant, and she's pregnant with twins who are infected with the goblin serum and age rapidly, and then they come and seek revenge on Peter for some reason, because I don't know, he wasn't their father. And to make it super, super weird, the daughter... Sarah, I think her, is her name Sarah? Sarah Stacy. Sarah Stacy. Gabriel and Sarah Stacy are twins' names. Okay? Sarah Stacy has a mad crush on Spider Man and then Peter. And then Editorial wants to double down in the spectacular title a short time later and make the Sins Revisited arc. Who I. If, if, if I was doing my due diligence, I would have asked Paul Jenkins about this because it's the only two issues, two to three issues that he had nothing to do with on that spectacular volume. So I would have loved to pick his brain. Um, so, so shouts to him for washing his hands clean Pontius Pilate style and say, I had nothing to do with those arcs. So they revisit it and it's super weird because Peter goes to help Sarah and she puts the Mac, tries to put the Mac on him even more so in that arc. So it, I don't know what what the hell was going on with with Joe Casada and and um, you know editorial at this time in in Marvel, especially in the Spider Man books. But like like honestly, what the hell? And they doubled down with the weirdness and the awfulness in a story that I'm going to get to in just a few minutes. Like I, I, I she was. I, I guess I keep coming back to the point. She was dead for thirty to thirty five years, Dave. Like why do this now? You know, it's 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 funny because I think I'm going to echo a lot of the things you just said. We're pretty much in agreement on the story. Gwen Stacy, at least the 616 version, is not my favorite Spider-Man love interest by far. Uh, but what they did to her character here is just wrong. She cheated on her boyfriend with the father of one of her friends, hid her pregnancy, gave birth in London, returned to New York, and pretended like nothing happened. Awesome. What kind of person does that? But, you know, this story did a lot more damage than just to Gwen Stacy's character. For one, after you read the story, it's very difficult to go back to the night Gwen Stacy died. Because it completely retextualizes, recontextualizes that story for the worse. Instead of her dying in the crossfire between Spider-Man and Norman, her death was the goal. Because Norman wanted his kids. So... You know, the guilt that Spider-Man feels about, you know, having dragged her into that, that's all invalidated. He was a, a, a bystander in a lover's spat, basically, in that story. You know, and then there's the damage done to Spider-Man and Mary Jane's relationship, which I don't think enough people point out when it comes to the story. Because she reveals that she knew 
about Gwen and Norman all along. How do you come back from something like that? That's a there's a huge knock in that into that relationship between those two. Oh, and yes, Gwen Stacy's daughter looks just like her and is crushing on Peter. Is, can it get any ickier than that? Now uh, we we've mentioned in last episode that the original plan seems to have been that the twins were actually Peter's kids with Gwen, and that could have made for a much better story. But, and this is so fascinating to me, this editorial mandate that Gwen and Peter never consummated their love. Why? They were together for quite a while in the comics. Who at Marvel thought they had to protect Gwen's character from premarital sex with her loving boyfriend, but a one-night stand with a creepy older dude who happens to be a supervillain is A-OK? It's it's just... (sighs) You know, this one hurts because it's JMS. And I love so much of his run. Spidey the teacher. His take on Peter and MJ's relationship. The silent issue when Aunt May finds out Peter is Spider-Man. Yes! Even the other was a good read, even if the whole Spider-Stingers thing was weird. He went big. He tried new things. He did the whole Spider-Totem thing. And all of that added something to the canon of Spider-Man. This is a story that feels like it lessens canon. It doesn't add anything of value, and it actually diminishes previous stories. And I think that's why this one hurts so much. We go from a story that really hurts me in my Spider-Man heart to just sets me aflame, and I want I want to, to burn everything down with your next choice, Dave. <laughs> Making you read this makes me feel so guilty. <laughs> Oh, God! I read this when it came out, Chris. Issue by issue, and much like All-Star Batman, I was thinking the whole time, is is, 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 is this for real, or am I having some kind of drug-induced fever dream? Because as far as I know, I'm drug-free. Like, what's happening right now? So, so let's go back to the ultimate universe at Marvel. You know, I'm a DC guy, so besides Spider-Man comics and some cartoons, I, I rarely had contact with Marvel stuff. Uh, this is in large part because DC Comics were published regularly, monthly, by a publisher called Dino in, in Germany when I was a kid, while Marvel wasn't really a regular fixture at the newsstand. So I, I kind of bought what was available. So when the continuity-free Ultimate line launched, I saw my chance to get me some Marvel. I read Ultimate Spider-Man, and I loved it. I picked up Ultimate Fantastic Four, and I loved that too. And then there were the Ultimates, uh, this line's Avengers. They were a little too self-serious for me, but I got a lot of enjoyment out of the first two volumes. The Ultimate line was, for several years, my Marvel. It's how I made my entry into the Marvel Universe. And then Jeff Loeb happened. Now, when it was announced that Jeff Loeb would be taking over the Ultimates... Uh, I was excited. I mean, this is Superman for all seasons, Jeff Loeb. Spider-Man Blue, Jeff Loeb. Batman, the long Halloween, Jeff Loeb. I couldn't wait to see what he would bring to the table. I had no idea it would be incest. So this whole thing started, really, in Ultimates 3, a five-issue series, which saw Ultron kill Scarlet Witch with some kind of magic sci-fi bullet, which caused a big confrontation between the Ultimates and Magneto. Uh, The five-issue series uh, was obviously written by Jeff Loeb uh, and drawn by Joe Mad, And it it, it was not good. 
for a number of reasons. Hawkeye acts like a murderous psychopath for the entire five issues, yet everybody's okay with him staying on the team. The characters are nothing at all like they had been in the previous two volumes. They were hollow shells of characters. Uh, There's a Black Widow Iron Man sex tape that features as a major plot point. And worst, for some reason, Scarlet Witch and her brother Quicksilver are engaged in an incestuous relationship. And when Captain America expresses his uh, disagreement with that particular relationship, the book implies via the Wasp that he's just being old-fashioned and needs to get with the times. Like what? The book had really nothing going for it. But, you know, I could forgive it. But it was a prelude to the real culprit here, and that is the miniseries Ultimatum. Ultimatum is basically an angry Magneto wanting to destroy all of humanity as revenge for the death of Scarlet Witch. It's overly violent for no real reason, characters die in incredibly gory ways, it barely has a plot, and everyone acts out of character. Everyone everyone involved in creating this book should feel bad. You should feel bad. This is not good. Here are some specific gripes. Magneto is angry and shifts the Earth off its axis, killing millions. How the heck does Magneto shift the Earth's axis? His powers are based on magnetism? Can somebody, like, draw me a scientific flowchart on how he pulled that one off? The book kills huge numbers of characters, many of them off-panel. Those that are killed on-panel are killed in incredibly gruesome ways. Now, I hate needless character deaths by default. You are literally taking pieces off of the chessboard, limiting your potential future stories. And in total, Ultimatum killed 34 Ultimate Marvel characters. 34! There's a scene where the blob eats the wasp and it exclaims that she tastes like chicken. A panel so revolting, so disgusting, and so out of the left field, I literally tossed the book across the room when I saw it. Oh, uh, Hank Pym bites off uh, Blob's head in revenge and then spits it out. At the very least, he he didn't eat Blob. That would have been, you know, double cannibalism. Magneto snaps Charles Xavier's neck, a move so far removed from his character and their actual relationship, it might as well have happened in the Twilight Zone. Wolverine is literally disintegrated. Oh, and, and, and the real kicker is the last page when it turns out the whole thing was manipulated by Doctor Doom, whose master plan was... what? How did he benefit from any of this? You know, the Ultimate Universe continued for several years after this, but it, it was really truly a shadow of its former self. I think this ultimatum is the moment when the Ultimate Universe died. It never recovered from this absolute disaster. There's one exception, and that's Ultimate Spider-Man which seemed to be pretty much immune to all the crazy stuff that was happening in the rest of the Ultimate line. But the rest of the Ultimate line was up the creek without a paddle at this point. It never came back from this creatively. Chris, I shudder to think how you felt after reading this. Dave, I know that we usually like to keep this PG-13 or family-friendly, but get your button ready. (laughs) this book. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what the hell?! (laughs) What? <laughs> I I I I need to I need to write a formal letter of apology to Frank Miller for saying that he went with the most dark and decrepit choice at every juncture. It's it's nothing compared to what Jeff Loeb did with this. Like like what 
like what is happening here? I have no answers. Like, and it real like, and and we talked about this a couple of months ago when we talked about Jeff Loeb's disgusting comments um, towards you know his Asian you know cast members of Daredevil, and a lot of this is bringing some stuff to light, and a lot of that stuff putting it's putting some contextual um, evidence here for me, because this is some really disgusting stuff, and it comes to whoever even thinks up stuff like this. The entire city of New York is flooded. A lot of people die. A lot of people drown. I get that. Why in the world would then someone just be walking around eating people? Like, why is that the first thing? To just cannibalism. Like, why? why? Where does that stem from? That's some dark and demented stuff, man. So when you, f- you first, like, started talking about, like, the Ultimate Universe and, and an event from the Ultimate Universe, I was initially excited... Because my only exposure to the Ultimate Universe were the Jonathan Hickman Ultimates issues, which were spectacular. His Ultimate Thor issues were amazing. And then all of Ultimate Spider-Man by Bendis and Bagley and company, which are the best comics I've ever read. I said if I was on a deserted island, that's the one thing I could choose to read. So and if I'm returning to that universe, I had high hopes. And then all of those those hopes were consumed by Jeff Loeb. He he ate them. Actually, the blob did, I think, and I think he said that your hopes taste like chicken. They taste like chicken. Well, I, I mean, and, and, and we talked about this, Dave, on our third episode ever, that we are totally okay with alternate universe stories. We're totally cool with a multiverse situation. In fact, we love it. It's super interesting. Just don't screw up the character and completely misinterpret what that character stands for as a result. And every single step of the way through this entire five issues, it's hard to believe this event was only five issues. I read it in like one night. It's hard to believe because it felt like I had been reading it for 15 years as, 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 as hard as it was to get through. But every step of the way, he mischaracterizes every single person. The, re- the relationship between Charles Xavier and Eric Lenscher, Magneto, is one of the most complex in all of comic books. Since 1962, it has been nearly, what is that? I don't know. I'm not a math teacher. All these years, <laughs> I'm, I'm too angry right now to even do basic math. All these years that Professor X and Magneto have had this interesting, nuanced conversation going back and forth. What is the best way to preserve mutant lives and to give them a place in the world where they feel safe? What approach is the best? And then their very only interaction in this event is for Magneto to take his hands and snap the neck of Charles Xavier. Is so far out of this character. Dave, this this relationship between these two individuals is so strong that there is a large portion of the X fandom that ships the two of them, that they are in a relationship together, that they care for each other so much that they would not be surprised if it was made canon that they were in a romantic relationship together. That's how deep their friendship is. Even though they are diametrically opposed, ideologically opposed for vast swaths of their history, they believe in that relationship so much that they would put them in a relationship together. And then for Jeff Loeb to come along and completely undermine all of that 
because the Scarlet Witch died, and that was all it took for Magneto to just go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and throw away. Because here's the thing, and, and, and one of the characters on screen said, or on panel said this, you're killing mutants too. The one common through line, no matter if he's been a well-written or poorly written Magneto, has been that he wants to preserve mutant kind. He doesn't want to kill the X-Men. He doesn't even want to oppose the X-Men in most instances. He just wants mutants to be okay. And then you just have like this senseless just death. You you die. It's like the Oprah Winfrey. You get a car. You get a car. You get a car. You get a death. You die. You die. You die. And it's just killing off characters just for the sake of killing off characters. And a lot of the Ultimate Universe, the more I dip my toe into it, it's just like... Like I said with with uh, the previous book, is is grit for grit's sake. Like let's be as dark as we can. And I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go ahead and put this at least partially again at uh, Joe Casada's feet. I did a little bit of research again before our episode, and I came across some uh, some comments and some interviews. And uh, the artist on this book uh, was I want to say David Finch. Yes, that's correct. And, and in an interview, uh, he made the comment that when he was hired for it, he was basically told that it was editorial's mandate that this would be the book that a whole bunch of people are going to die because Joe Casada wants to shake up the ultimate line. Now, you want to shake up the ultimate line, I'm all for that idea, you know? You want to keep it as different as possible from the 616? Go for it. But I don't think uh, killing 34 characters in a gruesome, joyless story um, is necessarily the way to go. So, you know, Jeff Loeb's writing here is not very good, but it seems like, again, some of the blame at the very least goes to editorial for this one. You know, and I I will say this even, um, probably one of the most senseless deaths in all of this is the one that was giving me hope towards the end of the book. And like in the epilogue, you know, Cyclops, you had Cyclops coming out and, and making this speech. And I was like, you know, oh man, this is, you know, at least a little bit of hope at the end of this book. And then he is summarily, beh- not only assassinated, shot in the head, like his whole head explodes. Like that, they just go as gruesome as possible. So like all the hope and all like the goodwill toward men that you might have going on into the future, picking up the pieces kind of epilogue of, of, of an event that has some stakes in it. Uh, you know, and a lot of, a lot of comics and a lot of events are criticized as having no stakes. This is the opposite end of the spectrum to where you're killing off everybody into where like the sake, the stakes, there are no stakes either because everybody dies. So what's the point? There's no meaningful deaths here because everybody just died. It's one thing for the Dark Phoenix saga and Jean Grey to sacrifice herself to to rid the universe of the Phoenix Force and, and, and to save, you know, countless lives. That's one thing, and that's a meaningful death. But when everybody just dies, like, what's the point even? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I would say, uh, of all the books that we talk about here this is the one that infuriates me the most. Now, some of the other ones we're talking about come close. Uh, your next choice really, really does. But but this one, I had a real love for the Ultimate line. I really did. It, it brought me into the Marvel Universe. It got me curious uh, to a new extent about some of those characters. Uh, and this, this wasn't a shake-up. This was a bloodbath. All right, Chris, your next choice. Let's go ahead and keep the anger going. I think I'm going to... Uh, <laughs> think I'm going to need a drink or something before we talk about this one. <laughs> well, um, the next one is the one that Spider-Man fans probably go back to, um, and that's one more day. Um, and 
Joe Casada's hit streak, you know, continues here. Um, I, I really like Joe Casada's art, and he seems like a really fun individual. He seems very jovial, loves what he does, but I don't know what the hell he was doing as an editor because, you know, it, it's time and again, it seems like, you know, he is, you know, the, the editor-in-chief was responsible for so many of these very, very poor decisions from the top down um, in, you know, in the early to mid, and you know, the whole 2000s decade uh, was, was very, very strange. So, so for those of you who are blessed enough to not have experienced Spider-Man One More Day, it is a four-part 2007 comic book crossover storyline connecting the three main Spider-Man series uh, concurrently, uh, that were running at the time. It was written by J. Michael Straczynski, JMS, as, as a lot of fans refer to him, and um, and Joe Casada with art by Casada. Um, and the story arc concludes um, the fallout of basically happened after um, Civil War, 2007 Civil War. Um, and it starts in Amazing Spider-Man 544, goes on to Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man 24. The Sensational Spider-Man, Volume 241, and then the final issue is in ASM 545. Basically, what happens, Spider-Man in the Civil War event reveals his identity to the world, um, and as a result, he and Mary Jane and Aunt May are on the run. The Kingpin... Uh, as one of the primary antagonists for Spider-Man, finds out that he you know, knows of his identity and he has Aunt May assassinated. Um, and in, in, order, in order to save his life, Peter Parker makes a deal with Mephisto, the Marvel Universe's devil, where he sacrifices his marriage to Mary Jane Watson Parker in exchange for the life of his Aunt May. Now, as... Before I even get into my feelings on this, Dave, as as I've told you and our listeners before, I was very late to reading comic books. I didn't get started until I was in college and I found Marvel Unlimited. When I first purchased Marvel Unlimited, I logged in at the main screen, read these comics was their promotional, and I saw read Spider-Man one more day. So the very first comic arc that I ever read in my life was Spider-Man One More Day, just to set the scene for probably why this this story arc is so damaging to me, because it almost killed my comics reading experience before it really got started. So the reason that this story is so ridiculous and so dumbfoundingly awful is because an entire generation of Spider-Man fans grew up with Peter Parker and Mary Jane together. Also, the reasons behind this. Apparently, there's no one in the Marvel Universe that can fix a bullet wound. Um, Doctor Strange can't help out there. He can he can put a spell so the entire world forgets Peter's identity as Spider-Man and that everyone forgets that he revealed himself, but a you know, run-of-the-mill sniper bullet wound, no one can do anything about that. The worst part of it is, the most frustrating part of it is, for me, and I love Aunt May. She's a matriarch of, she's one of the matriarchs of my nerddom. But for God's sake, from the jump, even in the Lee Ditko issues, this woman had been dying for 60 years. 
every other issue. Every other issue. You know, every other issue in the, the Lee Ditko era, every other issue in the Lee Ramita era, this woman is on her deathbed with a common cold because she is so fragile. So he sacrifices one of the most pure relationships in all of comic books in order to save her life. It, it, it just, it's nonsensical to me. It, it, it makes no sense. I mean, look, I mean, look no further than probably the most iconic uh, arc, the Master Planner uh, arc from ASM 31 to 33, where you have Spider-Man under that rubble and he, he lifts, you know, that rubble. So in order, why was he trying to lift under that rubble? Because he was trying to find this antidote to save Aunt May's life. Because right away at, at the beginning of his story, his sickly aunt you know, had to ha- had to be saved because she was so sick. But, oh man, it's just so many awful parts. And as we said on the last episode, this is Casada's baby. He wanted this story to be told. He owns up to it even now on Twitter. He has a lot of fun with Spider-Man fans saying, you know, I pissed off Spider-Man fans for all these years. Um, and it- it's just the most frustrating thing. And every every love interest that came afterwards, even in the One More Day, there's a lot of elements of, of the One More Day era of Spider-Man that I truly enjoyed. Um, Dan Slott's Spider-Man uh, was very, very enjoyable to me. Um, I, I love that he was such a fanboy and that he loved the character so much. But I mean, like, when you have this editorial mandate, your hands are tied. And when you limit your creators, you know, Carly Cooper was okay, but she wasn't MJ. MJ's number one, man. Like, we talked about it before. Like, she is a dynamic character on her own. She is the perfect match for Peter. And just because of this silly contrivance, you know, they're separated. And it just makes no sense. And like I said, it almost it almost sacrificed my comics readership to the devil before I even got it started. I have a difficult time explaining my anger with this book. Um... You know, creators do different things with characters. Uh, there's an ebb and flow to all of that in, in the comic book world. You know, I get all that. But but this th- this kind of struck at the heart of some of the things I loved about Spider-Man. Uh, be- because I kind of came to the comic books a little, a little later than many more. So, to me, uh, Spider-Man was kind of always married. And, and Mary Jane was kind of always there. Uh, in in all of the stories that I read when I became familiar with the character. But what drives me really, really crazy about this uh, particular series is really twofold. The goal of the book and the execution to get to that goal. Let's start with the execution. Marvel wanted a younger, single Spider-Man. They didn't want him to get a divorce, since that would age him. They didn't want to kill Mary Jane because then he would be a grieving widower. So what do they do? Well, they've been fighting this particular battle for years. I mean, in large part, that's why they did the Clone Saga. The whole idea was, we're going to replace Peter Parker with this Ben Riley, who's actually the real Peter Parker, and he happens to be single. Ha ha, we can have our single young Spider-Man again. But here, it's a freaking deal with the devil. Peter Benjamin Parker makes a deal with the actual devil. Peter Parker makes a deal with the devil. How far removed is that from his character? 
He sacrifices his relationship with the love of his life to save his dying aunt, who is so old, she literally used to hang out with the biblical Moses. It would have been totally an appropriate twist for Mephisto to save her from the gunshot wound, only for her to die of a heart attack two days later. The joke is that the answer to solving their dilemma was always clear. Instead of messing with Peter Parker, they just needed a second Spider-Man. Ultimate Spider-Man was young and single. Later we got Miles Morales, young and single. You could have kept Ben Riley around. He was also single. Why do you have to mess with Peter Parker? There are so many variations of uh, other characters, uh, of the Flash. How many Flashes have we had? There have been several people who've been Batman. If you, if you, if you want to play this game, give us another Spider-Man. I mean, that's what we have right now in the 616. We have Peter Parker Spider-Man and we have Miles Morales Spider-Man. There are literally two Spider-Men. Why can't they have a different marital status? And this brings me to my second problem, and that's the, the goal of the book. Why do we feel the need to move backwards, Casada? Why do we feel the need to reset the character of Peter Parker back to the 1970s? Why can he not grow, develop, learn from his mistakes? Why does he always have to be the single loser? Don't we literally have decades of those types of stories with Peter Parker? And why can't we have those types of stories with Miles Morales now instead? When it would be a different person reacting to those kinds of problems? Where we could have different stories that are interesting and not just retreads of something we've already read in the 1970s? See, one of the things I love about Spider-Man is that he started as some punk kid and ended up as an Avenger. He grew, he learned, he loved, he lost. He grew up. He had a character arc and a trajectory, and that made him pretty darn unique in superhero comics, when everything always constantly gets reset to some kind of status quo. Peter was in high school, and then he graduated high school, and then he went to college, and then he wasn't in college anymore. And, and then he became a teacher, and then later, you know, Otto Octavius started a business for him, and he, he, was, a, he was a business owner. Like, he has always been moving forward which made him such a unique character in superhero comics. And then suddenly, here's the story that resets him back 30-40 years. And why was him being married so terrible? Are comic book writers so bored in their marriages that they can't think of stories to tell with a married couple? I can tell you from personal experience, my marriage is not boring. Marriage is a great adventure. And as the Rebirth Superman comics prove, the superhero can be of even be a father and still have interesting adventures. In fact, I will go to bat for the Rebirth Superman comic books any day of the week. Him, with Mary to Lois Lane, with their son Jonathan, were some of the most fun comic books and my, one of my favorite takes on Superman that I have read in years. And one of my big problems with Bendis' current run on Superman is how he messed with that dynamic. It's hard, it's hard to see post One More Day Peter Parker is my Peter Parker is what I'm saying. My Peter Parker has grown beyond the, the, the lovable loser thing. He's already overcome so many of these problems that they decided to bring back. My Peter Parker has learned, he's grown, he's loved, he's matured. And I'm not dismissing Dan Slott's run or any of the other writers' runs that have come afterwards. Many solid stories are there. But I dismiss the notion that some of those stories could not have been told with a married Peter Parker. I, I completely echo those sentiments. And, and 
it's incredibly limiting too and 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 i don't understand why you can't have a married protagonist like i feel a little bit like I I know that it's fun to be young and hip and not have a care in the world, not to be tied down by anything. But some of my favorite Spider-Man stories, the ones that I relate to the most, I'm a hopeless romantic. Romanticist literature, I'm a big lovey-dovey kind of guy. I I know I'm I I'm not like this super macho individual. I love reading poetry. I love, you know, happily ever after stories. And for me, like one of the quintessential, you know, models for that were peter and mj like my favorite spider-man comics um ultimate aside if we're talking 616 my favorite spider-man stories are late 80s and early 90s spider-man and i know it gets a lot of crap because of the clone saga but i i gotta be honest i don't really hate the clone saga that much because at the very least even if you're wading through that you have this fantastic and deep and dynamic relationship that I can completely relate to as a married man. Like my wife keeps me honest all the time. She is my accountability partner. Like anytime that I think that I'm coming in and crusading and doing this thing, she keeps me in check. Well, you need to make sure you do this. And Mary Jane does all of that for Peter. Like she will stay home and she will hold down the fort while he's going out and doing all these, you know, high flying adventures. But she is his conscience she 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 grounds him in a way that that Peter doesn't really have now in current comics. And I think probably now that I'm a much more well-versed reader and I come back and I look at the historical context of when when one more day took place, it was it started in September of 2007 and in July of 2007 just 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 before that you have probably my favorite single issue of a Spider-Man comic ever. And that's the Sensational Spider-Man Annual. Annual. Yes. Yep. By Matt Fraction. So good. By by Matt Fraction, who himself is a married man to Kelly Sudaconic. They're both comic creators. They get it. They're 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 some of my favorite creators. They get it. They know how to write complex individuals with married lifestyles like you get it you you look at this issue and you could tell matt matt fraction understands what it's like to be a married man he gets the dynamic of being in a committed relationship after the honeymoon period is over um and and even as much as i love a lot of those 90s stories it was like ooh, look we're both young and hot let's smooch um and i love the todd father but a lot of his stuff was a little bit a little bit too smutty for me um but this was like after the newness had faded and that's marriage. You know, no matter if you're in, you know, a hetero relationship, um, an LGBTQ relationship, it doesn't matter. The principle is the same. You can see that these people love each other. It's a fact that she, she, she's being offered immunity by the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. She's like, that's my husband and I've got his back. And it's one of my stand up and cheer Mary Jane moments is this issue. You have, and, and, and the sub, the subtext or the subtitle of that is to have and to hold. And, you know, you see this beautiful quote right here from, from MJ. Maybe the rest of the world thinks marriage is something to do between other marriages, but it means something to me. You're my partner and my husband, and I love you. This is our life. They're on the run from the authorities, from S.H.I.E.L.D., 
you know, as a result, because he refuses to fill out the, the superhero registration stuff. So they're literally on the run. And then you follow that up with another great event, Back in Black. Back to the black suit. It's fantastic. But then it all lands in this, you know, proverbial cow pie in one more day. Because all of this beautiful stuff, all these beautiful stories that you've told have been completely undermined by selling your marriage to the devil. And I completely agree with what you said. You've got a beautiful, diverse cast of characters in the spider books. You've got so many spider characters. You've got Spider-Verse. You've got Spider-Geddon. All of these characters. You've got Miles, who is a young teenager. And you can revisit all those times that you love from young Peter, but through a much more complex and different lens, being a black Puerto Rican kid from Brooklyn than it wasn't from a white kid from Queens. Like, it's, it's even more fascinating. And then you have Spider-Gwen, who has set the world on fire, is a super dynamic character. Such an interesting take, you know, with the ballerina slippers. The whole neon look of her costume is amazing. She's in a frickin' rock band. You know, in her universe, Peter Parker is the lizard. That's such an interesting dynamic. And then to say that Peter Parker can't be married, even though he's been around since frickin' 1962, and he's still supposed to be in his early 20s, and not tethered down. It just doesn't make any sense. I don't understand why Peter, now in a world of all these Spider-Man characters, can't be sort of the elder statesman. What is wrong with a Peter Parker who is in his early or mid-30s, is married, has a kid, young kid, and uh, basically is a mentor in a lot of ways to, to these other Spider characters? We could explore a different side of Peter Parker, tread new ground rather than retreading ground. Um, and, and you still get your, your young, single spider character with Miles. I just, now would be the perfect time in my book to, to move Peter forward again. To, to ditch the whole one more day thing. To, to bring back the marriage. And I would go even further and say, let's bring back the kid that, you know, disappeared and never goes mentioned again during the clone saga oh let's, yeah let's go ahead and and, and give p let's okay i retract what i said about the clone saga no. <laughs> let's just just go ahead and give, give peter his his family back and and see what kind of stories come from that well i'm gonna give you i'm gonna give you some bonus content dave here's a here's a special two-for-one deal and a nerd commendation and, I, and i'm gonna officially make it a nerd commendation go read um, Spider-Man renew your vows. It was, it was, a, it was a, so. Good. Oh my god! And it's Jerry Conway and Ryan Stegman, two of the best Spider-Man creators, doing their stuff the best. Even when they did, um, like a, a subsequent series after Secret Wars was over and Jody Hauser took over. I'm still reading that. It's so beautiful. It's like, what if they would just left it alone? And they would have been married. And he's eating cereal at the table with his kid, and and, and Peter's being a dad, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it feels like Peter Parker. It feels like Peter Parker. It's a, it, Look, Peter Parker's core, and I, I think we could talk about this all, all day, but Peter Parker's core is one of, of responsibility. I mean, that's very clear. His whole, you know, with great power comes great responsibility mantra. It, it extends beyond the mask in my book. And, and so 
he 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 is a a character that not only embraces responsibility but thrives on responsibility and is there a greater responsibility than the responsibility of raising a child of being completely having to be the person that this one human being can completely rely on that you're you're helping this 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 new human find their way there is no greater responsibility in life and i think Peter Parker is, of all the characters that you can imagine in superhero comics, probably the most suited to explore the responsibility of being a parent. And the fact that we, we never got a chance to really see that in the 616 is absolutely r ridiculous. It's a, such a huge missed opportunity. It is, it's, it's storytelling gold. Well, and, and just off the top of my head, you really sprung something on me to think about that. Think about all the other lead characters in, in the Marvel Universe, and none of them really match up to, like, you know, proverbial dad material. Tony Stark is a billionaire playboy, you know? He's not, like, the dad. Uh, Captain America is the elder statesman. Like, he's focused on serving his country and the greater good and doing the right thing, and he doesn't have time to be a father because he's always fighting the good fight. The Hulk? Yeah, right. I mean, come on. So, I mean, like, Thor, he's a god. You know, he can't be bothered with such mortal things. So, I mean... But then you have but then you have Reed Richards, who I would argue is also not exactly dad material, but, but he gets to have kids yeah. in the story. Because the, the idea of the Fantastic Four has sort of family baked into it. But I would argue, so does yeah. Spider-Man. I mean, like, who? what better way to carry on that legacy of Uncle Ben that 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 father figure then into the next generation but having having peter pass on all of those you know all of those things you know onto his child it's such a missed opportunity exactly yeah i totally agree with that all right dave you are going for me uncharted territory you told me don't read this one what you got <laughs> yeah so let's talk uh, about a six issue uh, limited series called amazon's attack from dc comics written by will pfeiffer penciled by pete woods uh it's ostensibly a wonder woman crossover story but it doesn't really feel like it i mean the story is just nonsense the amazons wonder woman's people basically attack washington dc and go to war with the united states the whole thing is, of course, secretly orchestrated by a super villain, uh, Cersei, uh, a Wonder Woman villain from you know several books. Uh, the, the book is is just so weird. It's completely divorced from the Wonder Woman continuity, the time for one, completely tone deaf. So Queen Hippolyta, Wonder Woman's mom, is in charge, uh, which you would think makes sense to some extent, except in the Wonder Woman books at the time, the Amazons had actually become a democracy. So I don't know why suddenly Hippolytus in charge again. That made no sense. Uh, but my personal favorite is just the war. I mean, the Amazons literally attack with spears, spears and swords. But for some reason, the U.S. military can't handle them and they have tanks and fighter jets. At, at one point, you have like the Amazons on flying horses attacking Air Force One. And one of them chucks a spear through the cockpit of Air Force One. Let, let me repeat that. A, a Amazon throws a spear through the cockpit of what is supposed to be the most highly advanced flying machine on planet Earth. I'm, I'm not that science. I, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, the reasons, Amazons, reasons, as you said before. <laughs> the Amazons at one point use a bee weapon, a weapon that like causes bees to attack people, because that is like 
Excellent war strategy. Batman utters the funniest line in the whole comic. It has been memed to death. He's just he just stands there completely expressionless and says, "Bees, my god!" <laughs> and I'm like, "Yes, bees." What? <laughs> Wonder Woman is almost completely a non-factor in the story for the first four issues or something. She shows up in like one or two pages per issue. She shows up, says she'll go and do something, disappears, and doesn't do squat. And then, you know, rinse and repeat. Uh, None of the characters take any actions that make even a lick of sense. Batman is so odd in this book the way he's portrayed. Superman is just a complete dodo in this one. Um... When I read this, I was really trying to get into Wonder Woman comics at the time. Uh, And this turned me off Wonder Woman comics for several years. I had to go backward and read Greg Rucka's run, which cleansed my palate but good, and it needed it. Because Amazon's Attack is the weirdest, most nonsensical... Like, it's, it's not even... It's not even Ultimatum. Ultimatum is just mean-spirited and nasty and gross. Amazon's attack isn't even that. It's just... It's inept. Like, it's just... in It's incompetent. Amazon's attack is an incompetent comic book. It's, it's hard to be mad at it. I just feel kind of bad for it. Yeah, so, like I said, I haven't read it. And um, other than, like, a quick wikipedia search i i don't know anything about it. i will say thanks for this non-commendation because i have been interested in reading other uh, reading wonder woman comics for the first time so i know which one to um avoid um it's uh, hilarious I, i'm looking at the reception and ign called it ill-conceived and awful <laughs> <laughs> that's about right and i don't usually agree with oh, ign man. reviews but yeah so um i did see greg rucka's um trade paperback like it was the complete greg rucka collection for like 27 dollars at the at the local comic shop so if you think that's good I- i'm definitely gonna pick that one up it's some of the best Wonder Woman you'll ever read. Now, if you wanna if you wanna go a little further back, uh, there there are others. But as far as like modern age, uh, my two favorite runs on Wonder Woman by far: Greg Rucka and Gail Simone. Uh, but both of those runs are gold, and and some of my favorite Wonder Woman stories. Oh, I need to read everything. I I, I hear great things about Gail Simone, and then she's one of the most delightful personalities I've seen on Twitter. So I I want to read like everything that she does. Oh, her 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 Birds of Prey is ridiculous. So good. Um, her Wonder Woman was a lot of fun. But if you really want to see Gail Simone absolutely unleashed, you, you need to read Secret Six. I mean, Secret Six is is like C and D list supervillain characters uh, in DC uh, stuck stuck with each other. And it's just it's it's so well written. It's it's a masterpiece. It's a masterclass in taking lesser quote-unquote lesser characters and telling great stories with them well chris i mean this was a rough one i feel some nerd ptsd coming on here hey Uh, hey at least at least we've got nerd commendations to look forward to that's right let's take a quick break and when we come back it's time for our nerd commendations let's get positive don't go anywhere nerds All right, and we're back. Nerd commendation time, folks. Both Chris and I will be uh, recommending television shows this week. Chris, what should the nerd world be watching right now? 
Oh man. Uh, so I have to give thanks to you, my friend, for this, and our our pal and loyal listener, Jeremy Arnold, for for making me live through the nerd nightmare of October. Because as I as I hinted back uh, last month, it really opened up my eyes towards looking at more diverse content in in my fandom, and I immediately. Once I figured out I wasn't as big as a chicken as I thought I was, went to HBO Max and I dove head over heels in love with Lovecraft Country. Uh, Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Lovecraft Country is an American horror drama television series developed by Misha Green based on and serving as a continuation of the 2016 novel of the same name by Matt Ruff. Stars Journey Smollett. Uh, a lot of nerds will know her as uh, Black Canary of the Birds of Prey film. And Jonathan Majors, who is rumored to be Kang in the upcoming Ant-Man film. Uh, it premiered August 16th, 2020 on HBO. It completely destroyed all digital records for HBO Max. Big home run for them. Probably the best way you could start off a streaming service. Um, it's produced by Monkey Paw Productions, Bad Robot Productions, Warner Brothers Television Studios. Um just some big names that are involved with this. J.J. Abrams, Jordan Peele. Like, doesn't get much better than Jordan Peele. He's he's the King Midas of Hollywood right now. The series is about a young black man who travels across the segregated 1950s U.S. in search of his missing father, learning of dark secrets plaguing a town on which famous horror writer H.P. Lovecraft supposedly based the location of many of his fictional tales. So it's, it's such an interesting show because you think it's one thing and then it like turns everything on its head. Um, and, you know, I'm... I, I, I like to think of myself as like a, a really progressive individual and I always like to promote, you know, characters of color and, and, and shows that, you know, um, really are, are, you know, a lot of a lot of the problems that I have, though, with a lot of like civil rights, you know, films or, or television shows is that it just kind of wallows in the misery of all of that and it, and it makes it just feel you feel awful that these things have happened. What I love about this show is these characters, particularly Journey Smollett's Letitia Lewis and and Jonathan Majors um Tick are, are just they take their destiny into their own hands as they screw that. I don't care what you think of me. Um, and I'm going to control my own destiny. I'm going to learn magic and learn spells and I'm going to go conquer all of this stuff. And it's just incredible. And like all these, it, it, and it's so deliciously weird. Like the opening sequence of the first episode before they even get to the main story is this dream sequence of tick as he's driving uh, or riding on a bus and he's having this dream and it's like, um, the war of the worlds and like this alien invasion and all of this stuff. And um, like he's a Korean war veteran. So like the Korea, uh, like the, the U S army is fighting off this alien invasion. And then all of a sudden Jackie Robinson comes in with a baseball bat and just starts beating the crap out of these aliens. And it turns out it's all dream sequence. So it's the craziest thing that I've ever watched, but it's so dynamic and it's so awesome. And it's such a, different take on you know civil rights and and you know equality because what i also love so much about this show and um is how nerdy it is like 
and you know with a lot of things from this period it's just you know a one-dimensional take on characters these are black people in america in the 1950s they're suffering from segregation and that's the depth of the character that's all you get but like there's so much about these characters like based on what their favorite books are and they're so wonderfully nerdy like um Hippolyta, who is um, the main character's aunt, um, she's a stay-at-home mother, but, like, she can also do, like, advanced math and science equations, and, like, she knows how to solve all of their problems with, with math and science. Um, Tick's father's favorite book is The Count of Monte Cristo, so you know I was in when he said Count of Monte Cristo. Um, <laughs> but, so, uh, they was, hooked me from the word go, but, like, that plays deeply into like the storyline and the plot and you know, it's just completely like dense and and so layered in the character development and and it's so wonderfully weird i love this show check it out man yeah i don't know how i missed this show um how have i not watched this yet it's horror which i adore it's a period piece which appeals to my history loving nature it's lovecraft infused but most importantly uh Journey Smollett. Now, I sincerely believe Journey Smollett was the best thing about the Birds of Prey movie. Her performance as Black Canary was hypnotic. She was fantastic in the role. I would love to see her reprise Black Canary in an HBO Max show or a follow-up to Birds of Prey. Um, yeah, I just, I, I completely fell in love with her acting in that movie. And, and even just alone on the fact that she's been cast in this i need to check out lovecraft country i'm getting right on that as soon as possible it sounds like a ton of fun and it's good to know that i now have warped your fragile little mind <laughs> well two scenes that i want to highlight just it perfectly encapsulates how number one how awesome this show is and number one or excuse me number two how awesome she is in this show so um there's a scene where they are heading to lovecraft country and they're pulled over by the police and you 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 know exactly happens what you think would happen the police pull guns on them and you think that they are about to be you know killed by these police and the racist 1950s america but then all of a sudden these monstrous aliens erupt from the ground and devour all of the police it's that just <laughs> sci-fi weird and awesome and then they're on the run and then um the second scene that i want to highlight is journey smollett she's just a powerhouse man like she absorbs all the screen she takes it's almost like she takes the camera and like, she just, like, follow me on this amazing journey that I'm going to take you on. Okay, so, like, she buys this new house on, on the north side of Chicago, which, if you know anything about U.S. history, the south side of Chicago is predominantly where the black people in Chicago lived. She bought a house in the white uh, area of Chicago on the north side, and, of course, her neighbors were awful to her. They lined up their cars and put bricks tied bricks to the horns so the horns were honking non-stop for days and days and days she finally gets fed up takes a baseball bat and smashes out all the windows of all of those cars so yeah it's amazing i can't recommend it enough man um dave you've got something that's completely off my radar what you got so i'm about to blow your mind my friend i figured this one was off your radar stop me if you heard this one before there's a guy from earth He's a real smart aleck and full of pop culture references. But he gets stuck in outer space far from home. He gets taken in by a group of outcast aliens. One of them is a noble warrior who wants to avenge the death of his wife. 
another a pint-sized troublemaker. There's an alien who also happens to be a plant and forms the heart of the group. Oh, and then there's the fierce warrior who used to fight on the side of the bad guys, but now he, uh, she's the hero's love interest. Guardians of the Galaxy, you say? Nah, man. Nah. I'm talking Farscape. The show premiered in 1999 and ran for four seasons on the Sci-Fi Channel. It was cancelled on a cliffhanger, then revived for a miniseries that wrapped up the story. Let's be clear here. Farscape is my all-time favorite science fiction show, and that's extremely high praise, since I consume science fiction like other people consume air. Yes, it, it's better than Star Trek, even my beloved Deep Space Nine. Yes, it's better than the reimagined Battlestar Galactica. It's simply the best. John Crichton is an astronaut that gets shot through a wormhole and immediately runs afoul of a military commander. Now he's on the run on a ship full of escaped prisoners while trying to find a way back home. So what made this show so remarkable? Everything. Impeccable acting. Alien creatures designed and operated by the Jim Henson Company. Yes, the aliens in this are essentially Muppets. But they are so well designed and so well put together that they're actually able to do incredibly weird and strange aliens rather than, you know, Star Trek's bumpy forehead aliens. It's so much more inventive than that. There's absolutely bonkers writing. Farscape was always willing to take an idea and push it further, harder, until it almost breaks and becomes ludicrous. Almost doesn't work anymore. But, but still is so entertaining. Perfect example. There's a body-swapping episode. You know, most science fiction shows seem to do at least one of these at some point. But, but Farscape wasn't satisfied to swap the bodies of their characters once. They did it three times in a 42-minute episode. It was disorienting, bonkers, but at the same time it worked flawlessly and gave every actor an opportunity to basically play two other characters on the show. Um, so when the show was cancelled after previously having been renewed for a fifth season... I took the mature course of action by boycotting the Sci-Fi Channel. And I continued to boycott that Sci-Fi Channel until they aired The Peacekeeper War several years later, the miniseries that wrapped up the story of Farscape. That's how strongly I felt about this show. The show is currently streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Uh, do yourself a favor, watch it. And, and it is no secret in the nerd community that James Gunn is a huge Farscape fan. In fact, John Crichton's uh, actor, uh, Ben Browder, has a blink-and-you-miss-it cameo in Guardians of the Galaxy Part 2. And it is very clear to the fandom of Farscape that many of the situations in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies and many of the characters are direct tributes to Farscape. This show starts well, but before the show is over, it's the best sci-fi television show of its generation. And if you haven't seen this underrated gem, you owe it to yourself to watch it. If you like the Guardians of the Galaxy MCU movies, you have four seasons and a miniseries of a show that you will adore. I knew it sounded familiar. Yeah, you recommended this to me like... I want to say two, three years ago. Yeah, so uh, this has been sitting in my watch list on Prime Video for quite a while, and I'm kind of freed up right now, so I'm definitely going to have to check this baby out. And in fairness, you know, my wife is not the biggest consumer of science fiction. I've slowly warmed her up to that, and, and she's watching more sci-fi with me than she used to. Uh, for many years, she categorically refused to try to watch Star Wars, but uh, we've, we've finally broken that ice. <laughs> but Farscape was the great exception. 
because it is anchored by such an interesting and dynamic love story that my wife watched all four seasons and the miniseries with me and frequently asks, so when are we going to rewatch Farscape? <laughs> it is just that good. See, see, I'm the exact opposite. She, She's the bigger sci-fi nerd than I am. She turned me on to Star Trek and stuff. But I will say that I am loving every minute of Deep Space Nine right now. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to this as well. The Quark, the Quark-Odo relationship is one of the best that I've ever seen. Absolutely. Uh, Deep Space Nine is something really special. Well, that's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword By Podcast. And I have to say, this might be our longest episode yet. Thank you so much for joining us and sticking with us. If you enjoy our podcast, please give us a rating or review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're available pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, YouTube. You can even find us on... Um, uh, Amazon Prime Radio now. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Nerd by Word or individually at That Nerd Chris and at That Nerd Dave. You can also check us out on our amazing Instagram page by the same tag at Nerd by Word individually That Nerd Dave and That Nerd Chris. And make sure that you are following our page and that you're subscribed to this podcast because we just crossed the 1500 follower threshold on there, and we're going to be doing an amazing comic book giveaway. So definitely keep your eyes peeled to our page for that thanks as always for your support of our show we appreciate all the love stay well and stay nerdy the nerd byword is written and produced by chris and dave two nerds with a love of all things pop culture the podcast features music by al Jimenez and show art by ashery design find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available <laughs>